Uh, and I don't know if you know who that is. It's Trevor Lawrence. He is, uh, he's 19 years old. He's got uh, about every NFL team watching him at this point because the guy's pretty phenomenal as, as far as a quarterback goes. But what he had to say there in that, uh, in that interview was, was pretty remarkable. To say that football, as great as he is, and he, and he could go really far, have, you know, of course, $40 million contracts or whatever they're getting, uh, he, his identity, he says very clearly there, is, is resting in Christ. Now, I bring that up, and I, I play that for you today because I think as we move forward and we look at this, this passage of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, we want to begin to see that there is a shift that needs to take place in many people's minds. Now, maybe it's already happened in your minds, and so, so you're going to say, okay, this is somewhat of a review for me, but hopefully you're encouraged along the way. But maybe you're sitting there in your chair and you're thinking, you know, how do I become more focused on Christ. How can I get up there with a guy who, who has the limelight on him and a lot of people are watching him? How can I do something like that? Just say so boldly, so clearly that I'm a child of God, that my faith is in Christ, that my identity is in Him, not in football, as good as He is, not in the money that He's going to make in this life, but His identity is in Jesus Christ. That's powerful. Now, you and I may never have a platform like that, right? But we have a platform where we live. Wherever we go, whatever community we're in, whatever neighborhood we're in, whatever school our kids might be in, whatever store we go to, we have the opportunity to live out our faith in front of people so that they can see it. So this last week, I was, I was going to Walmart because I, I found these tires for my truck, and I'm, I'm kind of particular. I like tires that are, are cheap, and don't make a lot of noise when you drive them down the road, and last for a while. So there's a certain one I've had a lot of success with, and I found it, and I found it uh, amazingly priced on, on Walmart. So I'm like, oh, cool, I'll go ahead and get it there. So I, I order it online. They ship it to the store. They tell me it's there. I go to pick it up and find out that I was a couple numbers off on ordering it, and the, the tire that I got wasn't right for my truck. It was, uh, I needed a 10-ply tire. It, was, it wasn't heavy enough, heavy enough duty. So, so they, they tell me this. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, well, what is the price of the other one? And they tell me, I'm fine. Can I send that one back? Yeah, you can send that one back. And I can I order another one? Yeah, I can order some more. Okay, great. That's fine. And the guy looks at me and he says, you're not mad? I'm like, no. I'm like, it's my fault. I'm the one that ordered it and messed up on the order. Why should I be mad? He's like, well, most people usually, you know, yell at me at this point. So, so anyhow, two weeks or about a week goes by, and the other ones come in. I go back in there, and I say, hey, you know, I have ordered those tires. They're here now. He's like, great. Okay, let's pull it up. And he goes, oh, wait, I remember you. He goes, you're the only person I've ever had that when a more order was messed up didn't scream at me. I was like, Really? Now, on one hand, I think that's, that's great to have that kind of witness and testimony. On the other hand, I kind of goofed because as I walked away, I thought, you know, there's a great opportunity right there, a great opportunity to say, you know why I didn't get mad at you? Because I have a God who has been really gracious to me, and he has plenty of opportunity to get mad at me, and I've learned over the years that because he's not mad at me, I shouldn't be mad at you, but I blew it, and I didn't say it. Maybe next time, and if I have that opportunity... I'll be able to, to, to step forward and say that. But I think, you know, in my mind, I need to shift 
more in my thinking to, hey, every opportunity in front of a person is an opportunity to witness for Jesus Christ. And be more like this, this guy, Trevor Lawrence, where you have a platform, you should use it and use it for Christ. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as we move forward. It's going to take us about uh, 20 weeks or so to move through Matthew 5 through 7. Okay, there's three chapters here. Uh, it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. You may have some point in, in some church have gone through this. You may have read through it on your own. If you haven't read through it on your own, I would encourage you to do that because I think it's a really important uh, passage of Scripture that Jesus uses. Now, here's a, a verse I want to pull out of it, Matthew 5.13, and take a look at it. Here's what it has to say. You, I highlighted that word you because he's talking to you and to me, talking to his disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. He says, hey, you are the salt of the earth. Okay? But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, here, I'll explain this a little bit because that could be a little confusing. Like, what is he talking about? He's speaking an analogy here. I think this is the point. It goes back to a, a, a conversation I had with a young man many years ago, and he was telling me that basically he's a follower of Jesus Christ but he's going out and just living his life however he wants to, pleasing his flesh, doing whatever he wants. And then he comes back to the church, and he expects the church, and he expects the, the community at large to just be like, oh, you know what, you screwed up, we're going to forgive you and keep going. And what had happened over years is he had burned a lot of bridges. Because eventually people, you know, like the whole cry wolf story, people begin to say, you know what, I don't believe you anymore. You're going to say you're going to do this, and you don't, and you fall. And, and so there's a pattern that happens in his life. And he began to get really upset. He began to get upset at the church. He began to get upset at people because he said, why don't people just forgive me when I come back? Why can't I just go out and live whatever, however I want to, come back and just say, I'm sorry, and people forgive me? And so I took him to this kind of idea here, this concept, and I said, listen, as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you proclaim you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to act like you're a follower of Jesus Christ, because you become then the salt, the salt with the reputation that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you continue to live your life to say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but act completely different, people aren't going to believe you. And I think that's what Jesus is pointing to here when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if you lose your saltiness, if you lose your taste, how will you ever be made salty again? How is the world ever going to have respect for you again? Now, it's possible, but it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And you've got to rebuild that reputation. So Jesus, when he begins to share this, this message with his disciples, he says to them, listen, you have to understand, you have a reputation. And if you're going to go out there and say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to act like you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to hurt your testimony and your reputation out there in the world. So be careful how you live. Now, a couple things we need to know as we move into this passage. Okay? Before we dive into Matthew 5 to 7, I want to give you a little bit of a background. And today what we're going to do is give you a little bit of background, I'll outline the, the whole sermon for you, and then we're going to go through the message. Because one of the things that, uh, or the, the sermon, the reading today, because one of the things we need to keep in mind is that this was given as a, a message. And so I think it'd be good for us to hear it all at one shot. So that's what we're going to do today, and hopefully it'll make sense as we move forward. 
So a couple things that are good to know, and that is one, Matthew is written to a specific audience. In fact, each of the four Gospels has a, has a specific audience. Now, if you weren't aware of that, I'll just kind of give you a little bit of, of the background here. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you open up your Bibles, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the beginning of the New Testament starts with four Gospels that tell the life of Jesus. Now, some people have begun reading, and they're like, man, what? Are there four different Jesuses? And that's, that's not what's happening there. What you've got is just four accounts of Jesus' life told from different perspectives and to a different audience. And they're really helpful to us today because we can see from all those different perspectives what, it looks, what, what Jesus' life looked like from a, a Jewish perspective, from a Gentile perspective, and so forth. And so here's some of the things you can see as you look at the different Gospels. John. Okay, the Gospel of John, I'm going to start backwards, start with John, and, and just let you know that John was written from a theological point of view, stressing the deity and saving work of, of Jesus. And if you look at John, he'll start off, and he begins talking about how Jesus is the Word, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and you might be like, okay, I'm kind of fuzzy on what he's talking about here. But what he's doing is he's going back and saying, Jesus was, was there from the beginning, and his point is to say that Jesus is God. And he makes that point really strong. And he also makes the point that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. That's where our faith needs to be. So John spends a lot of time talking about the deity of Christ and the saving work of Christ. Well, then you've got Luke. Hey, Luke was a gospel that was written to the Gentile ruler Theophilus. And he emphasizes events that are both reliable and verifiable. Now, that's not to say the other gospels aren't. But he makes a point that as he goes and does his, his research, he's presented it to Theophilus and says, Theophilus, this isn't just hearsay. This, these are things that are verifiable. This, this, ev- there's evidence to support what I have to say. Because okay? he's writing a document to a, a person of authority. He says, Here it is. These, these events are reliable. They're verifiable. Luke uses a phrase like the Son of Man, I think highlighting that Jesus is, is God in the flesh. So he makes that point that he's our our human sacrifice that would come for our sins. So there's some of the things that Luke points out. Then you can take a look at Mark. Mark of uh, of the four Gospels is the shortest. And Mark was written, I think, to, one, uh, get the, the message out to the Gentile audience that Jesus is a servant and he came to give his life for many. And you can go through Mark fairly quickly. It doesn't have his birth. It doesn't record that. It doesn't record his genealogy. It doesn't record some of the, the minor details in his life. It just records the gospel message. It records that Jesus is a servant, and he came to give his life for many. It was easy to copy. You could get it out there quickly. You could spread it out and get it out into the world. And so Mark was written to a Gentile audience emphasizing those things. Well, let's come to Matthew. Matthew had a specific reason as well. And Matthew was written to a Hebrew audience and includes the genealogy of Jesus, as does Luke. But in Matthew's genealogy, he goes back to to Abraham and points out the line. Now, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. But Matthew goes back to Abraham, points that out. He demonstrates that Jesus is the expected Messiah. He's the son of David. And if you were a Hebrew and you had grown up, you would be looking for someone who fit the bill, someone who would actually be of the line of David, of Abraham, and, and would fit that, that bill. And so that's, that's what Matthew is, is writing to, is the Hebrew audience to tell them exactly who Jesus is. Now, why does all that matter? Well, 
As we look at the specific audience, it's important to understand that the Hebrew people at the time when Christ showed up were actually expecting a revolution, not redemption. When he shows up on the scene, you've got the Roman Empire that was, that was kind of taking over the area, and, and people were thinking the Messiah is going to come into the land, and when he comes into the land, he's going to set up, he's going to establish Israel like it was maybe in the day of King David or in the day of King Solomon, and they were expecting him to come in and overtake the land and be the great nation, the superpower of the world. And instead, Jesus comes in and acts like a servant. Instead, Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins talking about uh, things like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And they start thinking, what is he talking about? And then he starts to talk about how he's going to die. Like, wait a minute, you're supposed to have the throne forever. Israel's going to be great again. And he begins to show them his plan of redemption. They struggle to understand it until later on when he finally does die and then rises from the dead. So the Hebrew people had one thought in their mind. This is what they grew up knowing. But when Christ shows up, he begins to create a different plan or help them see the different plan that God had in store. And they have to shift their thinking. The Pharisees up to this point had also turned faith more into works than faith. And there's a reason for that. When you go back through Israel's history, you can begin to see how Israel, well, the reason they got, they got out of the land and, and were exiled was because they walked away from the law. And so by this point, now Israel had started to come back, and the Pharisees are teaching, and they've made the, the law so strict and so, so fine-tuned that people had a difficulty escaping away from the law. And so, so they got to this point where the, it became so important that people would fulfill this, this law. And it became all about the works, and their faith started to die. And so when people had heard from the scribes and the Pharisees, they had heard about how far they could walk on a, on a Sabbath day. They had heard about all the dietary laws. They heard about all these little things to, to try to keep them on the straight and narrow, but they heard very little about faith. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, we need to go back to the relationship side of things. And so that's why we're, we're having an emphasis on moving from what we know to who we know. Not to say what we know is necessarily wrong or bad, but we need to know our God who gave us Scripture, who gave us the Word, who gave us the things to do that would honor Him. So we're shifting from what we know to who we know, and that's how we came to this series title, Shift, moving from what we know to who we know. Now, I want to ask you a question. This week's question, as we jump in, give a little bit of the background, and then read the text together. Is it possible that after 2,000 years, we are still more like the Pharisees than Jesus? Think about that for a little bit. Is it possible that after 2,000 years, we are more like the Pharisees than Jesus? We still like our rules, don't we? Ah, we say no. But any rule that we think we can do, we like. And one of the reasons we like our rules is because if we can master this one rule and that person over there can't master the rule, then we can look at them and say, you know what? 
my life is a little better. I'm a little better than that person over there. Because I've mastered this. Now, they could throw it back and say, well, I've mastered this, and you haven't, and, you know, so forth, and you go back and forth. But we can get to that point where we think, oh, we can, I've done something so good. I've done something so great. I've lifted myself up. I've, and we look down on everybody else. That's a Pharisee. A Pharisee begins to think that they're blessed. And we can do this as Christians too. We can think, man, if I do everything right, God's going to bless. He's going to open up the storehouses and my life is going to be wonderful and great. And if I'm blessed and that person isn't over there, well, they must be doing something wrong. That's a Pharisee. Those things, I know they enter into your mind because they enter into my mind. And I've talked to people where, where those are the temptations we have. We begin to think of ourselves as a little bit better, a little bit superior because of what we've done rather than who we know. And the point that we find in Scripture is that we need to put our emphasis on who we know rather than what we've done. And that's what Jesus brings us to. So if you look at the, the passage as a, at a glance, Matthew 5 through 7, here's a couple of things you're going to see. One, when Matthew begins to open up this, this passage, he does what many teachers do. He sets the hook. Okay? Uh, you'll often see this. You know, we have a video of Trevor Lawrence up there. I'll give you a story at the beginning. I'll, I'll, some ways, like a fisherman does, throw the hook out there find a nibble, hopefully grab it, and people go, oh, I want to hear this. I want to listen to it, right? Well, that's what Jesus does as he starts the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off with things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are you when you pursue peace, and those types of things. This was different than what they had been taught, because what they've been taught from the Pharisees are, no, blessed are those who, who are not poor, blessed are the rich, and those types of things. And so he was doing something that was, uh, was counteracting what the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching at the time. Blessed for your humble position. Blessed are those who have humble actions. Blessed are those who are being hurt. And at that point, you'd be saying, uh, Jesus, there's something wrong with what you're saying. But he would have got your attention. And you say, okay, I want to see where this guy's going. Because he's saying some things we're not used to hearing. Well, then from there, he moves into a section, what I call the you've heard it said section. And in this portion, Jesus begins to tell the people, he says, well, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And what they had heard up to that point is there was a certain bar, there was a certain level of righteousness. And he says things like, well, you've heard it said, don't murder. That was from the law of Moses, right? Don't murder anybody. But I say to you, don't even hate somebody. If you hate somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. At that point, people have been like, that's not even possible. right?" Because we all know it. there are times in our lives where we get angry, we get bitter, we hate people, we, or we just feel that way. How do, you, how do you overcome that? Or he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust. If you lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and you've got people that are like, how is that even possible? And then you come to the end of the chapter, 548, and he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, at this point, he might have had some people saying, that's blasphemous, because there's no one like God. There is no one holy. There's no one perfect like God. 
And so people would have been thinking already, he's still kind of giving an introduction, like, here, I want to grab your attention and understand this is what God has to say. Now, we'll get there and we'll look at that passage, but there is a way to be perfect. And that way to be perfect is to be declared righteous through Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that when we get there. But perfection is the goal, and Jesus brings that to the surface. He says, this is, this is what we need to be focused on. Perfection. How do we get there? Well, we'll talk about that here in a few weeks. Then he gets into chapter 6, and he starts talking about how you conduct yourself with giving and prayer and fasting and anxiety and those types of things. So we'll hit on that. And then he gets into chapter 7, and he says religion is more than a checklist, which is, would have been what was presented to them by the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's your checklist. He says, no, it's not about that. It's more about self-reflection and looking at the log that's in your own eye instead of the speck that's in your brother's eye. It's about self-reflection and over-condemnation. We're not here to condemn our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're here to reflect and make sure our relationship with God is right. And we need to seek the Lord and not works. And we need to know the Father's will. And we need to know that Jesus is the foundation and not Moses. Now, up to this point, they had heard the law of Moses. Jesus comes and says, I am not getting rid of the law of Moses. I'm just going to come and fulfill it. So that's kind of the sermon at a glance. Now, you may have at some point heard a lot of different interpretations when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. There are some people that believe that the Sermon on the Mount has no application to us today. That is, for a future people. Um, I think when you read through it, it's really hard to argue that. Now, I know the audience is a Hebrew audience, but it's also a Hebrew audience that has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or he's bringing to faith in Jesus Christ. So I don't think he's just isolating and saying, oh, it's for a totally different time period. There's some that do that because it's maybe a little easier to interpret it and say, oh, that's for future reference, like be perfect as Christ is, or as God the Father is perfect. But we know that positionally that's true. That's, that's true in Christ. We're perfect when we place our faith in Christ, not, uh, not in our actions, but positionally before God the Father. So I think there's, there's things, and we'll see that as we go along, that really apply to, to where we are today. Are there some things that apply to the future? I think that's, that's true as well. But there's certainly some things that apply to us as well. So that's an introduction into it. Like I say, this morning what I want to do is just read through it. So I've asked a few people to come and join with me as we read through this. So if you guys want to come up here at this point, there's four of us. We'll read through it. It takes about oh, like 14, 15 minutes to read through the whole Uh, portion of scripture here, all three chapters. And as we do, I trust that you'll be blessed just listening to the words and uh, and listening to what, Emily, I'll have you come over here, Um, listening to what Matthew wrote and what Jesus spoke on that day. May the Lord give us ears to hear, eyes to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to obey uh, his word here in Matthew 5 through 7. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in hearts, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that, for that is how the, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I truly tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, well, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by the people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. And truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? But consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow... Won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? 
So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, take the beam of wood out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish... Will give him a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gates and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not like their scribes. This is God's word. Amen. Well, we go back to this question. Is it possible that after 2,000 years, we are still more like the Pharisees than Jesus? Uh, That's a powerful passage 
And, and I hope and pray that as, as we read through it, uh, you saw some, some things that really stood out to you and you said, those are hard things to swallow. And, and I hope and pray for all of us, it pushes us a little more to be more like Christ. We're called to know Him and to follow Him and to serve Him. And so I ask you that question, are you more like a Pharisee? And I'll be honest with you, I'm convicted with that question myself because I feel like maybe a little bit like the people would have felt on that, that day when Jesus began saying these words. I'm like, Jesus, this is some difficult stuff you're sharing with us. How do I ever get there? I've been told all my life that it's supposed to look like this, but you're saying something else. And one of the things that, that I struggled with when I grew up going to a church, and it's not the church's fault, I don't think, it was just, it was just my perception. For some reason, I think I, I had this idea that, that I was supposed to learn how to have all the right answers and be right. Like when I enter into some sort of a, uh, a conversation or a debate that I was supposed to have all the scripture and knowledge and, and, and be able to win uh, the debate. And so in, in high school, I did a lot of that. We would go into youth group, and I would talk about sovereignty of God, and I had all my scriptures, and I would talk about assurance of salvation, and I had those, and, and I would talk about predestination and all those types of things and get into arguments, and, and I thought, this is what it means to be a Christian, right? <coughs> Excuse me. But it's not. Uh, those things are important, and I still believe those things. I'm not saying I, I've ever gotten rid of those but what's more important out into the world is that the people we're trying to reach need Christ. They don't need to know that I'm right. They need to know that Christ is right. They need to know that Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. They don't need to hear my arguments. They need to his, hear His arguments that people are lost without a Savior that they are in sin, and they need to be brought before God the Father and washed of their sin through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to God the Father so that they can have true worship with Him and worship in spirit. That only takes place through Jesus Christ. And so a shift had to happen in my mind, and I don't know where exactly it happened, but somewhere it finally clicked, and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm not here to win the arguments. I'm here to point people to Christ. That's the most important thing. And it's not about me. It's about Christ. I grew up thinking church was about, you know, the place you'd go and you'd worship Jesus there. You would, you would sing the songs. That was a lot of the worship. And then you would read Scripture and you would learn from it and those types of things. That's what all church was about. But then I began to understand, no, church is much bigger than that. And worship is so much bigger than that. Worship is how I live my life for Christ. And I can do that here, and I can do that at home, I can do that in my neighborhood, I can do that at work, I can do that wherever I go, I can do that at the desk at Walmart, when I'm, when I'm talking to that person and buying tires. I can worship God by how I live my life in obedience to Him. That was a shift in my thinking. You see, God grows us and changes us as time goes by, and we begin to understand that this relationship we have with God is so much deeper than Sunday morning. It affects every part of our lives. 
And Jesus, when he gives this this sermon to his disciples, he points that out. Every single piece, even the thoughts in your mind, need to be God's. And so we push ourselves to that limit. Now, the challenge we have to respond, I want to challenge you with a couple things today as you think through today and, and give you a couple minutes just to kind of chew on a couple things. One, in the next 20 weeks, if you are challenged to rethink some strongly held views, will you search the Bible for a better understanding? Now, I don't want you to get scared here. I'm not asking you to walk away from your faith or you're not going to challenge you with any of that. What I am going to ask is that if there's something that God convicts you on, will you search scriptures? Because that's where we go back to. That's our authority. If there's some things in your life and you just don't know where it is and you grew up a certain way, you've heard certain things, mom and dad believe certain things, the church you taught had certain things, and, and, and you start to hear something that's different, will you search what God's word has to say and be true to his word? If you feel pushed, if you feel challenged that way, Will you at least make that commitment? Yes, I will turn to God's word, which is the final authority. Search it out. Seek help. Maybe some other people as well. Ask them and and help guide through some of those questions you might have. And then secondly, will you make a commitment to read the chapter surrounding the text we are studying each week? So we're going to go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We just read through it here. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in in chapter 5. So you might read it 8, 9, 10 times. But I think this is so important. If we just dig into Scripture, before you come, maybe Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, some, somewhere along there, if you just spend a little bit of time to read that chapter that we're going to be in. Next week we're going to be in chapter 5, the beginning of it. So you know that. Hey, I'll read chapter 5. The idea is just to get more and more Scripture in our lives. And maybe you already have a reading plan. That's great. You can tack this on. It's not going to take that long. But it helps prepare us. As we come to worship, we all, I hope and pray, we're going to be challenged as we move forward, right? We're all going to hopefully go to God's Word for guidance and direction because that's the authority we have in life. And hopefully, in 20 weeks, we'll be closer in our relationship to God the Father than we are now. That's the goal. And we do that through teaching on Sunday, through worship, through our life groups through discipleship groups, we're all working to try to know Christ better. So I'm going to pray, and then you're going to have a little bit of time, a couple minutes of reflection, where you can answer these questions. You can write something else to me. If you'd like to say, hey, here's a couple other questions I may have, or you want to say, yes, would you pray for me on these things? Great, let's do that. Love to do that. But I just want to invite you to reflect, spend a couple minutes doing that. And then, and then we'll come back up and, and be able to sing our final song in worship. Father, thank you for bringing us to this passage together. We're excited to jump into it. We're excited to bring ourselves before you and ask that you would take us and mold us and make us into the people you want us to be. If we need to shift our thinking in some areas, that we would be putty in your hands. But Lord, we would never, ever want to walk away from your word. So may we always find truth in what your word has to say. So we bring ourselves before you. We bring ourselves at your feet, and we ask you to mold and make us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.